0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The US is priced to perfection. I've got to go someplace else. One of the coveted decks of 2018 is Sharon Bell, ki Wong, Wang, John Kwan, Guillaume Jason, and Peter Oppenheimer at Goldman Sachs. John, you know, uh, John Farrow, this is a coveted PowerPoint, a story for 2018 yep. by their acclaimed student of European stocks.
1: And I'm pleased to say that Peter Oppenheimer, Goldman Sachs, Chief Global Strategist and Partner, joins us round a table here in New York City. It's great to have you with us, Peter. And the story of 2017 so far for me was just buy Europe, buy Europe, buy Europe. I got sick of hearing it. I'm sure so many people got sick of saying it. It's the perennial discount in Mm. European equities. Mm. Is it a value trap?
2: Well, it's a very good question, and for a long time, of course, it has been, partly because of uh, years of stagnant growth. And until this year, we had six years in a row of no profit growth. But things have got a lot better economically. Uh, profits have increased this year, we guess, by about 15%. I think one of the main reasons why it's underperformed is because it just has a lack of technology companies. When you think about it, the S&P is about a quarter of uh, of it is made up of technology look across Asia 27% if you look at the European markets in aggregate just 5% in technology uh, sector and that's one of the sectors that's driven markets higher this this year and one of the reasons why Europe is lagged behind. So
1: looking forward if
2: I look at Europe your big
1: overweight is banks on the European index that's the highest weighting on the S&P 500 it is technology so as I think about Europe next year do I need to be constructive on the banks
2: to be long Europe You do, I think. Uh, One of the advantages that Europe has is that while it lacks a lot of growth, it does have some deep value. Now, to your point, of course, Europe has been a value trap for a long time. Even the value sectors have been a value trap because they've seen persistent falls in dividends. Banks in particular, it's true also of the oil sector and utilities. But these sectors are finally starting to see uh, a recovery in their dividend growth prospects for various different reasons. And that generates a genuine value opportunity i think
1: peter pretty much everyone i talk to has a really optimistic positive view of the continent at the moment but as i look through cross asset i find it difficult to decide how to plug in that optimistic view of europe if you try and push it through fx at this point Mm. you're still up against the negative 40 basis point depot rate of the ecb if you try and push it through buns try and push it through buns and see what happens Yields just stubbornly stubbornly low sat for 30 basis points yesterday why is the long
2: equity trade going to work when it isn't working in the bond market right now? Well, I think we want to put it in, in a global context. We think the equity trade is working in general, and it's still right, we think, to be long of equities. We expect another year, next year, of global growth of around 4%. European equities are very levered into that global growth. Half half of the equity mark, market at least is exposed to non-European equities. Uh, economic activity. So I think Europe will do well. It may not be much better than the other regions, but certainly as a part of our diversified portfolio, I think with the recovery we're seeing now domestically and the fading of some of the political concerns, it's a good place to put some money.
0: With your decades of work at HSBC and now over at Goldman Sachs, is there a change in culture at European corporations? The simple statement is, are they becoming more Anglo-American? But that's just, everybody gets upset when I say that is there a change it's, in financial culture at these companies
2: it, it's a great question and it's been the long term hope of of equity investors that that's the case and certainly there has been a lot of restructuring and finally we've seen in some of the economies some liberalization of things like uh, labor reform re, uh, laws or reforms which have helped as well but if you look at the proportion of companies where you have shareholder value driving the compensation packages, for example, of CEOs, whereas it's around 80% or so in the UK and and the US, you know, it averages around 30% or so on the continent. Mm. So there's there's a kind of a gap there, but it is changing. Um, And uh, I think there's lots of companies that are really focused on self-help now, uh, spin-offs, improving efficiencies, and they are getting a, a lot better. And of course, many of them are globally very competitive, if not global leaders.
0: Where's the battle on Exxon's dividend of 3.8% and Total's dividend of 5.2%? Should I grab the European dividend?
2: Yes, I think uh, the oil sector in general is an interesting one. It's one of those, again, that's been in a value, I would describe as a value trap in Europe in recent years. You've seen, of course, the fall in oil prices. You've seen uh, a significant increase in, in costs for these companies and declining returns and declining dividends. I think the the opportunity for next year is that the sector as a whole is really transforming from script dividends to cash dividends. And with those yields that you mentioned, that really becomes an interesting opportunity. We saw that with Shell, full cash dividend. Right. Just a couple
1: of weeks ago, Peter Oppenheimer, Goldman Sachs Chief Global Strategist and Partner. Great to have you with us on the programme. Appreciate your time, Tom. Tom, the story for me is that... It's Buy Europe, Buy Europe throughout the whole of this year, and a lot of people were cautious about the United States in many ways compared to Europe, and the U.S. has still outperformed. And, and Jeffrey's coming out in the last couple of days and saying, stick with the United States, don't fall for the Buy Europe story.
0: Oh, it'll be interesting to say this. Peter Oppenheimer, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. He is with Goldman Sachs. The French take pride in their math, and they take pride in their convertible and derivative bond math. No one has done this better than Société Générale. And they have, John Farrow, a fabulous chart, and it is a chart of humility about extrapolating out into the future. They say, well, this is the glide path of Fed funds, and this is maybe what's going to happen. But this is also maybe. There's lots of maybe. There's not a lot of certitude, and that is a good and beautiful thing.
1: There is. Should we bring him in?
0: We should, please.
1: Uh, Amir Sharif, Societe Generale's Chief U.S. Economist. Amir, it's great to have you with us. Let's look ahead to next year. My big question for next year in the world of economics here in the United States is whether the Goldilocks growth scenario breaks down, whether we get a return of inflation, and this Goldilocks story for financial markets that growth remains stable, inflation remains low, changes. Does it change?
3: I don't think it changes, but I think there's a, a bit of optimism being built up around the reflation story for next year, uh, You know, partly due to the stronger growth scenario. We really don't see growth changing very much, so about two and a quarter next year. But I think there's a bit of anticipation that you know, inflation is really going to come roaring back. You, you hear the Fed talking about cyclical pressures pushing up on inflation. I think they'll get their story for about the first half of the year, but our suspicion is that in the second half of next year, that inflation figure will probably come back down to roughly about where it is now in core inflation, and, and th- that may lead the Fed just to, to sort of pull back on on rate hikes. So, really, if I you know we're looking for three, but if I had a lean, I would go to two hikes as opposed to four hikes like you see a lot of folks doing now.
1: Omed explain to our listeners how this is possible when we just printed 236,000 on initial jobless claims and unemployment tomorrow in the United States is set to come in at 4.1%. Why are we not talking about reflationary forces reasserting themselves, especially when you push through a fiscal stimulus through the economy as well?
3: Yeah, well, we're we're talking about it, but, you know, uh, I read this great phrase the other day, you know, you don't get inflation by incantation. Just because we're talking about it doesn't mean it's going to happen. And the reason really for it is that, You know, in my mind, there's two forces really pushing down on it, and they really don't have anything to do with the cycle or cyclical pressures. It's about shelter costs, which have been cooling off this year, and I suspect will continue to cool off next year as more supply hits the market. And the other is healthcare, and you've seen healthcare prices slow down quite dramatically this year. There really doesn't seem to be a ton of upside next year for for healthcare. These two things make up around fifty percent of inflation and how we measure it. And and if those they're not moving up, it's really hard to get the inflation data much higher right now.
1: Oh, um, there is an argument in the Minneapolis Fed. Headed by Neil Kashkari, that the Federal Reserve is the problem here. They're getting in the way of inflation reforces reasserting themselves. What do you say back to that argument?
3: Yeah, I think you know their point is simply that the more the Fed hikes, even though they're not seeing inflation, the more they could be pushing expectations down. And I think there's something to be said for that. I mean, if you look at, for example, the Consumer Surveys University of Michigan run. Five to ten years, what do people think? For a long time it was basically just between two two and a half, three percent. It's now drifted lower over the last year and a half. So, you know, the public may see two percent as a ceiling and not a target. Yeah. And that's that's argument of several people, including Kashgari. Evans, I believe, is sort of on that same page as well. So, you know, there there is something to be said for for the Fed allowing inflation to actually drift oh. higher. The question is, can they do it?
0: Okay, I mean, you know, I mentioned earlier the derivative work of Society Générale over a hundred years. That's all great, uh, Omer. What's your nominal GDP call? I mean, it doesn't take much fancy math to take real growth plus inflation. Can you get out over four percent nominal GDP?
3: I think it would be a bit of a stretch to. You know, I understand people are, are pushing it much higher because yes. of expectations of fiscal stimulus. Um, I'm struggling to see a really moving significantly beyond four, maybe four wow. and a half percent um, at best right now. That's uh, not, not, you
0: know, not morning in America for President Trump, is it? It's, it's not. And, you know, he's
3: pushing it up to four or five, six percent real GDP, as he noted yesterday. That's certainly a stretch. But I, I think, you know, consistently getting three percent, it's possible. But we, we just think it's going to be a bit of a struggle uh, next
1: year. Omar Sharif, Societad General's chief U.S. economist.
0: Bloomberg surveillance, there are many people that put this together. You may think it's just about Pim Fox. Pim, jump in here as you would as you get ready for the hour. And with John (laughs) Farrell as well. But you and I know there's there's like 25 people behind us.
4: 25, at least 25, yeah. if not at least... That you know, I'm
0: on speaking terms with.
4: Uh, ah, yeah. well done. All right, yes, indeed, yeah. 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 Jim so,
0: Morris saves me each and every day. He is legendary what time? What time in the business. What time does he save you? About 3 a.m. Yeah. He, he uh, for years, was with ABC, and we've been honored to have him here for years with us at Bloomberg. And he's the one that writes the language we speak in news. What's the hardest part about writing the news, Jim Morris?
5: Um, you actually learn for, t- for TV what you have to leave out. Yeah. Because you can't put too much in there because the ear yeah. can't comprehend everything you see. in print. And you're the
0: one that makes Taylor Riggs look brilliant every morning, right? <laughs> Taylor makes herself look brilliant. Okay, well, we'll <laughs> go with that. Jim, you're on with us today because your home is four or five minutes away from these horrific Bel Air fires. You're focused on the winds, as is every Twitter feed I see. Why is the wind now different than the wind of one or five or ten years ago?
5: Well, there's a, there's a number of things that have combined to make this. This is definitely the worst fire season we've had in Southern California in years. And uh, and there's several reasons for that. First of all, you go back to last winter when we had an exceptionally wet winter, which normally is a great thing there because California yeah, Southern California is yeah. dry. Mm-hmm. So what happens is vegetation grows. Then this summer, we had a record, it was a record heat wave. So what happens to vegetation? All dries out. So now all that greenery has become tender. So then- we have, um, uh, we're, wait, we're coming in the season, we have the Santa Anas. These are the winds that come from the Northeast. They go through the can- the the mountain passes where they speed up. You know, So a 20 mile an hour wind becomes 40, 50, 60 miles an yeah. hour. So all it takes is that one spark, whether it's a down power line or something like that. And all of a sudden, you've got these fires. At the
0: tension around your desk yesterday, you were showing people the ash on the cars in your driveway. And that is, well, what did you and the Morris family do to adjust or amend for something you can't control?
5: Uh, there's not a whole lot you can do there. When, you know, Once you've made your choice, it's like the earthquakes. It's, we're not, we're a couple miles outside the fire zone. But what happens is, <clears throat> in fact, the ash we, I was showing pictures of yesterday wasn't from the Bel Air fire, which hadn't started yet. It was, Interesting. it was from the Silmar fire, which is about 12, 15 miles away. People don't realize the impact. You can smell these things. When I first got out there 20 something years ago, is that it reminded me of being in Boy Scouts. It smelled like a big campfire. And, um, but the winds this year, for whatever reason, it has to do with changing weather systems. Um, the, the weather system rates them on a color scale. Orange is generally the high. For the, uh, for the first time ever, the, uh, the uh, color scale went to purple this morning, which means extreme. So they've already, this morning, they've reported winds of up to 50, gusts of 50 miles an hour. They say it could be 80. And, and one of the things that happens, it's not just the fire, which it, obviously can make it spread faster mm-hmm. it keeps the planes from coming in and dropping oh, water and the fire retardant on there they were grounded yesterday for a good while interesting Kim?
4: well i just want to mention i know uh, the area pretty well only from ventura and uh, carpinteria and going you know what i would say west and that's the one thing i just uh, ask people to pay attention to is you know you tend to think of california as a north south south north experience particularly with the 405 right? right well you know just about ventura and oxnard is where California actually is east west not north south and as a result of that you have the mountains behind all of these coastal towns and that can in a sense trap right. all of yeah. the wind Onto the coastal area, and right now you got fires in Santa Maria. You got uh, fires in, uh, I believe, just near uh Santa Barbara, a little bit west of Santa Barbara, up near Solvang. Plus, you've got the well, fire that's moving in Ojai, okay, and but, that Ojai yeah. fire is oh, dangerous. Is that how
0: you pronounce that? Ojai. O- o-
4: I- o- that's yeah. dangerous because once it once it skips there, it can skip right along the coast, go right up to Carpinteria, go right up to Santa Barbara, Montecito, and that becomes yeah. a very it, dangerous is a news situation guy, for which people.
0: Which fire matters to you as a news guy? Not the one next to your home. The one Pym was just talking about.
5: That one, to give you an example, the, the fire in Bel Air is 475 uh, acres. This one uh, up, the one right now is uh, in uh, Ventura, Ventura. Barbara, that it's 90,000 acres. Yeah,
4: 90,000 wow. acres.
0: 475 versus, versus 90,000. 90, oh,
4: and, and I would 000. also mention that, you know, what at the fire up in uh, Santa Maria, if you look at Vandenberg Air Force Base, which is, you know, where they do a lot yeah. of the launches for the tests out in the Pacific, yeah. that is right up there, and um, that yeah. could be uh, hampered by the it, smoke. It, Jim,
0: in the time we got left, how do you respond to people across the nation who say, wait, why did Jim Morris build a house there? There's that whole thing. I mean, I know Bel yeah, Air's like right. L.A. You're right next yeah. to UCLA. Right. But how do you respond to people in America who say, wait, Santa Ana, dry. There's fires every 10 years. Why are we building? You know, you've got eight bedrooms, six baths, a four-car <laughs> garage. You're looking out on the Hollywood moguls. Oh, and he has property right. taxes, yes, too. Yes. Why did you build there? Um
5: you go there because honestly, Southern California is paradise.
0: Because you're too cool for school.
5: Uh, that's true. And I, I, the people that say that, I'd say, well, why do you move to Florida and and the Outer right. Banks and South Carolina where you have all the hurricanes coming in all the time?
0: Do you go to the Mesa Boogie Guitar Store on Sunset Boulevard? Is that the coolest store uh-huh. in the world?
5: Um, no, but I have been I have been by there. You've been by and there. And I've gone to Hollywood Bowl a lot.
0: Okay, we keep you on for another minute and a half. But Rich Truman says you got to write a 15 second reader for Taylor.
5: I absolutely do, or Taylor's going to yeah. be really mad. Jim Morris,
0: thank you so much. And thank really, you very one much. of the foundation. Of what we do here at Bloomberg News, in in carving the news out for you in the King's English, it, it's true, Pim. If it's got to be forty-seven words, it's a lot harder to write than to write four thousand seven hundred
4: words. Just get rid of the adjectives.
0: Yeah, well, adjectives, he does that. adverbs,
4: just you know, anything with an L-Y, just remove yeah. it.
0: Yeah, and he does it effortlessly. I mean, I mean, we don't. We well, just and he does it starting granted. at two a.m. Well, I'll go with the two a.m. I got no sympathy for that, but uh, you know, when it, it, it's, it's it's great. Jim Morris uh, with us from Bloomberg surveillance, and of course, our thoughts to the people, particularly fighting these fires uh, across all of California. And Jim was talking about that uh, yesterday. To repeat, Mr. Morris lives in the vicinity of the Bel Air fires, and he's much more concerned, Pim, about OJAI.
4: Oh, hi. Oh, hi. Yeah, oh, I hi. Knew that.
0: With us right now, Fred Lane, who is with Lane Generational, and this is a part of Raymond James. I want to point out, you know, with all the usual rules, he can't talk about individual stocks, even though I insulted uh, him and talked about GE earlier. But but what you do do is somebody's got a pot of money. They walk in the door and they say, this has got to be every single account. I really feel bad I didn't load the boat in March of 2009. Mm -hmm. Fred, how do I catch up? But I don't want to take risk you get that 24 seven, right?
6: Yeah. Although my client base is a little different because we have family offices. We have some, uh, we have an endowment, we have an insurance company. Um, we have some charitable organizations. So it's becoming, I would even argue that many, not all, but many of our individual investors are almost like institutions where we manage a piece of what they do. However, I want to answer your question. Um, we do have people who come in and they have a, you know, they have a, a pot full of money, and it's going to be making six kind of or seven
0: percent a year. And they're watching, you know, Bloomberg TV or radio, listening right. to radio, and they're saying, "I'm not part of this."
6: Well, that's the thing you have you have to be in the game. And so, what what's important for me is to show them. And this is true almost r- across the board. If you look at the S and P 500, and you look at a 10 year chart, it looks like a pretty smooth. It looks pretty smooth. If you look at a five year chart, it looks again pretty smooth. But if you look at a three month chart or a six month chart, it looks pretty ragged. So it's a question of, of what is your time frame? You know, if, if you can't be scared by volatility, you have to accept that volatility is part of the game. And when stocks are down, okay, is the time to buy them? I give you an example. We are heavily, not heavily, but we, we're probably 35% to 40% in technology related stocks. Of course, technology is a very, it's, It's pervasive in everything Mm -hmm. we do. There's been a pullback in technology, right? There's been a sector rotation away from technology. We think this is a dandy time to buy technology for that reason, because these are persistent growth companies. These are going to be the companies you want to have owned in 2015, 16, 17, and 18, going forward five, six, seven years from
4: now. Fred, uh, you know one of the things that I look at uh, when I, you mentioned going back, you know, let's say to two thousand eight, is uh, I look at that big decline, right? Mm-hmm. That big drop where we hit the triple six. I guess that when then you know March seventeenth, right? Never happen again. Never happen again. Yeah. Um, uh, what What did you think at that time? Did you go out and buy? No, because I was fully invested. But I wrote,
6: I wrote it all the way down, even though I was on. Um, on air in various locales right. telling everybody how over the market was. But I thought the market would go down 15 or 20 percent. I didn't think it would go down 50 percent. So when it was down 40 or 50 percent, you know, I had my wife telling me that I should sell the stocks. And I said, look, I may have, I may be stupid that I didn't follow my own advice, but I'm not dumb. I'm not going to sell at the bottom. Well, guess what? You know, now the market is up. You know, how many times has it multiplied since then? Four times, right? All right.
4: But my, the, the point I is you're a professional. You have years of experience yes. doing this. That feeling that you had, that feeling, that emotional reaction that you right. have when it didn't go down 10, 20, when it went down 50, what did you do? How do you steal yourself from making a dumb decision as you just described? Well, I, I yeah,
6: so- You so get out
4: of the office? I mean, literally, Do you, what, what do you physically do to walk oh. away from the pain?
6: Well, I, I work out a lot. Yeah, that's something. I read a lot, and I read, and I, re- and I read a lot about history, and I read a lot about investment strategy and so on. And and it, it's very reinforcing to the long term view. The the other thing I'd say that's very important here is to is to recognize that you know when, when your emotions do not act in haste. You know, as I say, act in haste, repent and leisure. You know, you do not want to overreact to things. You know, but let me just say one thing. That was the worst market reversal we've had in 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 virtually anybody alive today can remember it could be a generational event event. absolutely it is i think we can say that with some degree of confidence if you bought all of your stock at the very top of the market before that reversal and held it to today you would still have a seven and a half eight percent return so it isn't that I, I understand that, but, it. but, but again, the conversation a, but, at that time. But I remind myself of that during times like that. That's my that's point. That's the whole point. Is okay. I remind myself, and, and I'd like to think that in today's that, now, and I'm doing this now. You know, I remember I spent 38 years as an investment banker and as a private equity investor, and you know, founding Staples and buying Seven Up from Philip Morris and things like that. And so, you know, I bring to that to this activity that experience. So as a result of that. You know, I I have, I think I have a longer term perspective and I think, and I'm really trying to buy these great companies that I think are going to end up being great returns.
0: DLJ, did you read Elliot Platt? Do you know what a bond is? Do I know what a bond (laughs) is?
6: I remember Elliot well and I do know what a bond is. Remember the Maroon Book on
0: Tuesday? The whole world would stop for the Maroon Book.
4: Right,
6: exactly. Remember the
0: Maroon Book?
4: Tell people about the Maroon Book. The Maroon Maroon Book. Book. Date yourself.
0: Okay, here, let me date myself with Phil Correa, a pioneer this is before pdfs folks okay you would push around on a dolly card all the fancy pants research it's 75 across the street or 60 station whatever and you'd get it about 10 a.m you get no literature before 10 a.m before that you were just having coffee and talking about the red Sox. and on tuesdays it didn't matter the feat of stuff you got elliot platts Right. Maroon book from right. DLJ right. Yeah. which said there might be a bond bear market coming. Fred is there going to be a bond bear market coming?
6: Oh, I think inevitably, inevitably, but but it's not I I don't I don't believe it's going to be that deep. And the reason I don't think it's going to be that deep is first I don't think we're going to have 4% GDP growth. And anybody who thinks that, I think is dreaming. I think structurally we're just that's just not available to us when you look at population growth and you look at the age of the population and so on. Um and, and you look at our increasing debts. Uh, and the other thing I'd say is that there's such a strong demand for interest income that I think it's going to keep a lid on, on mm. interest rates, right? And because structurally we have this aging baby boomer group, of which I'm a part, uh, who, who theoretically want, want to buy bonds. Now, I don't happen to want to buy bonds because I think the returns will continue to be insufficient given – you know, frankly, you, well, other 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 uses of your money.
0: We're going to run out of time. Use of cash continues, and will use of cash still mean dividend growth and share buyback?
6: Absolutely. Pardon me. That's, That's it. it. He, he answered it. He
0: he answered the short question. Right. Does he know this is radio? He can go a little longer. Well,
4: at least we want people to pay attention. You got to just think for a second there.
0: Fred Lane, thank you so much. Uh, with sure. Lane Generation of Raymond uh, James.